When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Casey Hunt, and this is CNN Tonight, a critical day for the January 6th committee, finally taking their most coveted testimony so far. Hours and hours and hours with former Trump White House counsel Pat Cipollone under oath behind closed doors. More than seven hours, to be precise, and it's all on the record. But what exactly did the panel learn? Does Donald Trump have a lot more to be worried about tonight? Mr. Cipollone uh, did uh, appear voluntarily and answer a whole variety of questions. Uh, he did not contradict the uh, testimony of other witnesses. And I think we did learn a few things, which we will be um, rolling out in hearings to come. So I think it was a, you know, a grueling day for all involved, Mr. Cipollini and the staff and the members, but uh, uh, it was well worth it. Well worth it, says committee member Zoe Lofgren on CNN earlier tonight. She did not get into specifics, but she thought Cipollone was candid with the panel today and believes that his answers were, quote, honest. Congresswoman Lofgren did note, quote, some complications when it came to attorney-client privilege belonging to Trump. But she said executive privilege was not an issue because the holder of that privilege is, in fact, President Biden. In another interview, she said the former White House counsel never pleaded the fifth. So what does that mean for the ex-president? There's a lot of intrigue about this testimony because, of course, Cipollone was such a critical figure in the Trump White House. He could know whether Trump knew about the violence that was planned for the 6th. Lofgren said a couple of times tonight how worthwhile this testimony is. Cipollone spent more than two years in the White House legally advising then-President Trump. Could he ultimately be the one who opens up citizen Trump to the most legal exposure so far in this committee's year-long investigation. Jim Schultz worked in the Trump White House counsel's office before Cipollone arrived, and he joins us now with some valuable insights. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for for joining us again. Uh, How important do you think this testimony was today? What does it tell you that it took as long as it did? And and clearly Congresswoman Lofgren uh, was pretty high on what they learned. So he, he gave an interview for five hours some time ago. So a lot of that is just confirming on the record what he had said during the interview prior to this. So we had another two hours. And what was done during that, what, what was accomplished during those two hours, we don't know. We're going to learn very soon. But I imagine a lot of it was corroborating what had been said by prior witnesses about what Cipollone heard, the advice Cipollone gave, um, and some of the things that went on in the days leading up to January 6th. So I know there's obviously been a lot of focus on Cassidy Hutchinson's blockbuster testimony, and rightfully so. But I do think we should remind people that Liz Cheney had looked into the camera and told Cipollone she wanted to hear more from him before we, as a country, heard from Cassidy Hutchinson. What beyond the testimony she offered do you think Cipollone can can shed light on that's the most important? 
Look, I think the conversations rel relative to Jeffrey Clark, the conversations relative to whether the former president was going to go down to the Capitol or not, the conversations relative to John Eastman and some of the things they were doing with electors, I'm sure that those questions, they were front and center today. And I, and I believe that you're going to, you know, a lot of that was also, a lot of what was discussed was also the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony and corroborating that. Can you take us inside the, the White House counsel's office? I know you were there before Cipollone was, but what kinds of conversations, because, you know, I've covered several presidential administrations. This was a pretty unique universe in which to operate the Trump White House uh, and the counsel's office. It was, you know, by many accounts, used in different ways, perhaps, you know, pressured and pushed in directions that it's normally not pushed. I mean, what kinds of things would Cipollone know uh, that could shed light on, on what you saw? Well, look, what Cipollone knows is what went on in the Oval Office and around the president. And most likely the other White House counsel staff, some of them may have been involved, may have been involved in those conversations. Some of them probably weren't. It's a staff of about 25 to 40 lawyers, depending upon you know, the time frame within which folks work there. Uh, usually there's more when the opposite party is in charge in the Congress because you're dealing with oversight issues. But a lot of the work that goes on the White House Counsel Office has a lot to do with confirming judges, working on regulatory issues. But the things that are germane to what they were discussing today were largely uh, are, are going to be things that go on at the top of the chain. Uh, Pat Cipollone in particular, he's the one that's there to counsel the president. He was the assistant to the president at the time. He was the guy in charge of the White House counsel's office, and he's the one that would have been having those conversations. So the reporting that we have suggests that, you know, as we pointed out, the Biden White House has effectively said executive privilege is not an issue here. But we do know that the attorney-client privilege issue was, at least the way Lofgren characterized it, was a complicating factor. How do you think that may have actually played out over the course of this testimony? Look, as it relates to uh, things relating to the commission of potential crimes or criminal-related matters, attorney-client privilege doesn't attach in, in those instances. So I believe that in those instances, he would be free to testify as to, um, as to what he heard and what he saw. And remember, if he's giving legal advice to the White House, that's the part that's privileged. If you're not actually giving legal advice at the time, that privilege doesn't attach. So I'm sure there was some give and take back and forth as to whether this is something he was giving legal advice on, this was something he heard outside of giving legal advice, and was there, you know, the commission of a, was there an argument that there was a crime being committed at the time, and, and does privilege not attach there? Yeah, so are you saying if some of the testimony where clearly we've heard other witnesses say, Pat Cipollone told us not to do this because we would be committing a crime. That's not covered by attorney-client privilege? In certain instances, it would not be if, 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 there is, or if there were crimes being perpetrated at the time, then yes. I mean, because then the, the government official that may, be, that may be involved in that criminal activity is acting outside the scope of their you know, role as a government official if they're acting you know, in their individual capacity and perhaps committing crimes. At that point in time, there's this, there's this disconnect between who is the lawyer representing. The lawyer's representing the office of the White House, right, and, and the, uh, because they're the White House counsel. 
the, the White House counsel is not Trump's personal lawyer. Fair enough. All right, Jim Schultz, stay with us. Uh, I want to add in some very experienced political minds to our conversation. Former Montana governor and state attorney general Steve Bullock joins us. Former Florida congressman Francis Rooney and former senior advisor to Mitch McConnell, Scott Jennings. Uh, Welcome to you all. It's great to have you tonight. Um, Congressman Rooney, I actually want to start with you because uh, for our viewers who may not remember, um, you had expressed some openness the very first time that former President Trump um, was <laughs> potentially facing legal jeopardy during the impeachment uh, hearings. And then obviously you stepped down. You just had not to run for re-election. So how do you view what we've heard from the committee so far, and particularly the Cipollone testimony, when you're thinking about it as a Republican who is you know, wondering, like all of us, are other Republicans going to be swayed by this? Yeah, well, the reason I said I was open to hearing uh, all the evidence about impeachment is I'm a business person. I'm used to getting the facts together before I make a decision. And uh, obviously Trump didn't like that, and a lot of people didn't like it. And, uh, but I heard all the evidence, and I talked to two ex-White House counsels, and they convinced me that it wasn't impeachable, even though it was pathetic. Fair enough. That. So how does, that, how does that experience apply in this, in this situation? Well, I think we need to get all the facts now. You know, we know that uh, there are facts related to the people coming onto the ellipse with guns and the president wanting to aid and abet them and then inciting them to go down to the Capitol. I don't know whether that's all legal, cul- legally culpable or not, but maybe Mr. Cipollone could, could uh, amplify what he said about crimes being committed or not and we can't go down to the Capitol and things like that. I think that would be, to me, that would be very important for the American people to know. Yeah. Uh, Scott Jennings, what, what does eight hours with Pat, almost eight hours with Pat Cipollone tell you? Well, I mean, it obviously tells me he was uh, uh, more than forthcoming. I mean, it sounds like they had some attorney-client issues, but you don't sit in a room that long without saying something. I mean, I mean, the question is clear. Did you tell the president or anyone else they were committing a crime and they disregarded you? I mean, that, <laughs> it is, is that, a pretty straightforward <laughs> question, I mean, isn't that, it? That's the, that's the clear, I mean, I know there are other issues, but that's the question. And so I, uh, I guess we'll find out next week whether, whether that question got asked and answered, but that's, that's kind of what I want to know, not just about what was going on outside in Washington on the 6th, but as it relates to what was going on with the pressuring of Mike Pence, because I assume he had an opinion on that as well. Yeah. What's your take? Yeah, I, I guess two things. First of all, going back to the privilege, just let's recognize that the White House counsel only in the official capacity. So that's not on the campaign capacity. It's not the personal capacity. And, right. It's the office itself. Yeah. And the president had nothing to do with the con- the meeting of Congress pursuant to the 12th Amendment. So I'm not sure where that privilege is there. And I think, to Scott's point, it could be a lot, right? Seven hours. Clearly, the committee had a lot to go through. And Cipollone, Mr. Cipollone, clearly also, unlike Eastman, Giuliani, Mitchell, still recognizes those ethical obligations that you have as a lawyer. It could be a little bit less, though, too, because it could well have been that, you know, sometimes in a deposition or otherwise... You spend an hour trying to get an answer to one question. So it will be interesting to see when this is released, really how forthcoming he's been or he was, because he hasn't always been necessarily the profile and courage. Uh, Jim Schultz, let me bring you back into this, and I, I want to get Scott's point of view on it as well. But what's your assessment of the credibility or lack thereof that Cipollone has inside Trump world? I don't know what his credibility is inside Trump world. I think Pat Cipollone has tremendous credibility 
generally speaking. He's a careful lawyer. He's a smart lawyer. He does the right things and was clearly doing the blocking and tackling that needed to be done uh, in advance of January 6th. So I, I think he's going to come off as a very credible witness. We've already heard that he did, that, you know, that the committee was satisfied that he came off as a credible witness and very candid. And that's what I would expect from a lawyer like him. Well, and Scott Jennings, uh, Cipollone also, and this is kind of in the context of some of the political conversations we've been having around, you know, Mick Mulvaney was telling Republican voters to look at the very staunch Republicans who are testifying before the committee, you know, ignore, I mean, even ignore Liz Cheney, despite the fact that she's a Republican. She's lost some credibility among the MAGA crowd. Pat Cipollone has a pretty unimpeachable record among conservatives in Washington and in general. Oh, no question. He's highly regarded by Republicans here in D.C. And, and elsewhere. It's interesting, for all the characters that came and went out of the White House, Donald Trump picked two really good White House counsels. Don McGahn was terrific, and then Pat Cipollone was also terrific. So uh, these, these credentials on these guys, both professionally and politically, are, are really high. Yeah, it's going to be uh, very interesting to see what, what we are able to, to get when the hearings resume uh, next week. Jim Schultz, thank you, as always, for being with us. We really appreciate your time. Steve, Francis, and Scott, stay with us. We're going to continue our discussion. Should there be consequences for any lawmaker involved in insurrection planning? What the voters say. Up next. The revelations coming out of the January 6th committee could have serious implications for people not named Donald Trump, namely several Republican members of Congress. A new Monmouth poll finds that a majority of both Democrats and independents think any member of Congress who helped the planners of the January 6th insurrection should be removed from office. Plus, a not insignificant 36% of Republicans believe the same. We've got our political brain trust back here to discuss, Steve Bullock, Francis Rooney, and Scott Jennings. Uh, Scott, let me start with you on this, because there clearly are um, some Republicans in Congress who have serious questions uh, to answer about what they were doing around January 6th. Some of them were brand new members of Congress. Uh, How do you think those people should be held accountable if it's proven that they have roles, whether it was you know, some people were showing rioters, eventual rioters around the Capitol that showed that they knew what was what was being planned, etc. Well, number one way people are held accountable, as Congressman Rooney knows, uh, and Governor Bullock, is by the voters. I mean, you you know, these things become part of your record, and you have to go home and defend it. So that's that's one way. I mean, I assume some of these people have been asked to answer questions by investigators, and if they have some criminal culpability, that'll be explored as well. But to me, when a member of Congress does something. Uh, in their official capacity, it's, it becomes of immediate uh, uh, need for the voters in that district to examine that and whether they should be representing them anymore. Yeah. So how, how, this question was interesting to me because it doesn't say how to remove them. And the way most members of Congress are removed is by being beaten or retiring. Right. Although that's not going to happen for like a Lauren Boebert or a Marjorie Taylor Greene unless they lose a primary, right? And they didn't lose primaries. They both had primaries this year and they didn't lose. So these issues were uh, were examined. So I, I, I'm reticent to always... To, I mean, a lot of people always want to kick members of Congress out and throw them out. And what, I, I always think the voters, <laughs> people's votes are, are very important to me. And, uh, and letting voters decide who represents them to me is very vital to our democracy. Sure. I mean, con- go ahead. Well, the challenge is like, look, we have 35 election deniers running for governor in 20 states around the country. 
I mean, so much of this is baked in right now that folks say that the way that they do win is actually coddle up to the Trump side of things. And, you know, elections might be outcomes. Democracy is a process. And we've got to make sure that that process is protected. Or folks like this are going to win based on a denial of the last election. Right. Well, and that's kind of the consequences of leaders in Donald Trump who repeatedly say things that are not true. I mean, Congressman, you were, you know, in Congress until 2021, right, you know, right around the the time that all of this was unfolding. And there was an incredible amount, and there still is, it's gotten worse, of distrust that was generated by some of these um, members of Congress, that the the hardest core MAGA among them, um, with Democrats, but also others, I mean, Adam Kinzinger, uh, because of what they may or may not have done on January 6th. How did you experience that? And how big of a problem do you think it is to have these Republicans serving? Well, it's, it's part of the bigger problem of what kind of party do we have that these people would be so completely unhinged. That was a coup. That was, they were participating in a coup. Now, I don't have to defer to the legal experts here about <laughs> what that means, but I look at it as one of the most outrageous things that's ever happened in this country. And I hope enough people will finally realize the magnitude of what these people did and what some other people did to aid and abet them. I mean, do you see any evidence that it's breaking through? I mean, especially, and I know you have a lot of connections in elite Republican circles. I mean, it's a relatively small world. A lot of these people Mm -hmm. have been working in town for, for many, many decades. And a lot of them during, for example, the first impeachment were arguing against it. They were willing to carry Donald Trump's water at that point. Do you get the sense that that's changed dramatically in recent weeks as this testimony has become public? I think it's definitely changed. Uh, just look at the amount of money Ron DeSantis has raised from business. Ooh, raised I think, from business. I think this party that we have used to be, uh, one of the pillars of our party used to be suburban people and business. And now the party's almost hostile to business. It's populist and nativist. And you, you think that even, I mean, Ron DeSantis has also pretty publicly taken on some businesses like Disney, for example. He has, but he he's, hasn't attacked capitalism per se. I haven't heard him say greedy corporations like I've heard some other Republican senators say. Scott Jennings, are you picking up something similar here? Well, I, I, I definitely think that there are a lot of Republicans out there who voted for Donald Trump twice, maybe gave him money, wanted to see him succeed, who no, we cannot drag the party and the country through this again in 2024, that he's the least likely Republican to have a chance to win the White House. And they see someone like DeSantis as somebody who gives you all of the fight and all of the policy without all of the baggage uh, and uh, worse that came with January the 6th that Donald Trump would bring. I think, you think top leaders might be actually willing to take the risk of supporting DeSantis over Trump? Uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I think that he is more than viable to win the nomination and to win the White House. I think there are other people as well. Tim Scott, I'm very fond of as well. And and uh, Nikki Haley and others, there's going to be a big field. Any of them would be a better choice. And I think a lot of Republicans in their hearts know that. And uh, I, frankly, I think that's why Donald Trump's considering launching his re-election campaign right now, because that fire, I think, is starting to build a little bit, and he wants to try to tamp it out. Yeah, I think a lot of Ron's donors probably looking past the governorship price. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you do not need $111 million to get reelected governor of Florida. Not, not um, as a Republican right now. It helps, though. It helps. I mean, yeah, sure. It go a long way in Montana. <laughs> yeah, go much further in Montana. So I have to play devil's advocate here to you, Governor, which is, so why aren't Democrats capitalizing on this gigantic mess that Republicans have? Because the Biden, Biden administration's having trouble. Well, I, I think, look, the, the Republican Party, you know, we often say when the Democrats get together, we organize a firing squad in a circle. It's kind of nice to see the Republicans finally doing that as well. And, 
And there will be the opportunities as they implode. I'd also say, though, it's interesting that you can look at, you know, Senator Scott, like he said, he hasn't watched the hearings. Nikki Haley, oh, oh the Republicans head in the sand, against Republicans. Trump era is like again. still there. Yeah. I mean, so it's still I, it's, it's so <laughs> overwhelming in that. So it'll be interesting to see how that sifts out. I mean, I might be for uh, Congressman Rooney for president, the way he's talking. <laughs> the question you asked him was why aren't Democrats taking advantage of this implosion? Because they're imploding. 70% of Democrats don't want Joe Biden to run for re-election. <laughs> Neither party has its act together on 2024. Yeah, each side's got the lunatic it's fringe, a big and we're all stuck in the middle. Yeah, look. <laughs> in fairness, there's the left did not attempt a coup, but I take no, your point that many are too far left for the mainstream of the country. <laughs> and I still think it's a little early. You know, we love to be the pundits to say, here's what's going to happen in 2024. There's still a lot of time. Right. And the reality is, if we've learned anything from the last couple of election cycles, we have absolutely no idea. And it's not useful for (laughs) us to speculate. Remember Jimmy Carter as well as Donald Trump. (laughs) Tell the audience. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Steve Bullock, Scott Jennings, thank you guys both for being here. Um, Congressman, we're going to talk to you uh, later on this hour, so please stick with us. The January 6th hearings resume Tuesday, as we've said, with a focus on domestic extremists. Join next by someone who's met with the committee about warning signs that were ignored in the run-up to Insurrection Day. Stay with us. Tuesday's January 6th hearings are going to focus on the connection between extremist groups and the Trump White House. Those groups like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and the Three Percenters. Some of their members were part of the January 6th mob and have already been arrested and charged with various crimes. But does that mean that these extremist groups are any less of a threat now? Joining me tonight is Donnell Harvin, the chief of Homeland Security and Intelligence for Washington, D.C. He was in that position during the Capitol insurrection, and he's met with the January 6th committee multiple times. Sir, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Can you remind our viewers what types of things you have discussed during your testimony with the committee, and do you expect to publicly testify? Well, the the discussions I've had with the committee, I'll leave with the committee. I don't want to get ahead of them and their investigations. Um, I I have spoken with the committee on the possibility of publicly testifying, and I'm available to them should they need me. Um, Some of the things I've said publicly, however, um, that that are consistent with my testimony are the fact that uh, these groups were amassing in the days leading up to, the days and weeks leading up to January 6th, and there's still a threat as we speak. What's the nature of the current threat from these groups? Well, well, clearly the Department of Justice has done a great job um, investigating and indicting many of the individuals that were there on January 6th. However, there are individuals that were not there, uh, that stayed home, that we consider to be extremely dangerous, uh, actually thought that those who were organizing January 6th were uh, JV, so to speak, um, and they came out uh, out of the woodworks on the 7th and the 8th on, online uh, lamenting the fact that they hadn't been there and had they been there, that things would have been different. So uh, to, to think wow. that we have, uh, you know, accomplished uh, a great deal in the prosecution of 800 or so rioters on January 6th is a fallacy. Uh, there are thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of individuals that are radicalized across this country and the, the mobilization to violence from radicalization can happen in a very brief mir- uh, period of time. 
When we heard Cassidy Hutchinson testify before the committee, during that, the course of that hearing, we heard for the first time um, tapes of interactions by law enforcement discussing arms, guns, being held by people in the crowd outside the ellipse when the president was making that speech, presumably headed down to the Capitol. That was, it was then suggested that the president was aware of this. Cassidy Hutchinson recounted the president saying to, you know, get rid of the magnetometers that surrounded the speech, uh, that those people were not there to hurt him specifically. What do you know about that? Were you aware of the fact that the crowd had arms on the day of the insurrection? We had warned our law enforcement partners in the federal space uh, weeks before January 6th that they were planning on bringing weapons. Uh, that was one of the, some of the concerning information that we were getting uh, online, that they'd planned to sequester. They were seeking uh, tips and, and tactics on how to, to hide long guns and how to bring in weapons into the District of Columbia, which is illegal, by the way. Um, and, and on that day, we were actively monitoring um, through various mechanisms uh, the fact that people were having guns and getting pulled out of the crowd. Um, and so we knew that there were guns going to be planned to bring, uh, be brought into D.C., and we knew on that day that people had weapons. So what do you make then of, and you were talking a little bit earlier about what you knew about what was going on online with some of these groups planning ahead of, of January 6th. What do ties between the White House and White House aides, whether it's the president himself, Mark Meadows, Rudy Giuliani, Roger Stone, and the White House ties to people who then we suspect or we know in some instances had ties to some of these groups. I mean, what does it tell you that the White House perhaps was in contact with Roger Stone about, about what was going on on January 6th? Well, I'll tell you, we had no intelligence or an information suggesting that there were ties between uh, the violent groups that were coming on January 6th um, and the White House at that time. Uh, since then, uh, there's a lot of work that's coming out of the January 6th um, committee and we're learning more about potential ties. Um, I'm just like you, I'm a spectator in this space. I'm looking forward to seeing what's coming out of it. But if, if, if it's true, it's very concerning. Um, we also saw, and, and we're not just talking about violent groups here. Um, January 6th, uh, part of the untold story is the rise of the conspiracy theory movement uh, that we all laughed about years ago, and they're serious now. Not only are they serious, but they have an armed militia backing them. And so when you look at those two forces together, we have these mixed ideologies, what we call in Homeland Security a salad bar ideology. Uh, it becomes a very dangerous threat environment. All right, Danelle Harvin, uh, before I let you go, just to clarify, you're available to the committee, but they have not yet actually asked you to testify in public? I'm available to the committee, and, and they know how to reach me if they need me. All right, Danelle Harvin, thanks very much for your time tonight, sir. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Ahead, we're going to look at what the FBI director tells CNN concerns him most about the rise in political violence here and abroad after today's tragic assassination of the former Japanese prime minister and the recent murder plot against Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh when CNN Tonight returns. FBI Director Christopher Wray spoke to CNN today just hours after the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. He expressed concerns about the threat of more political violence back here at home. There are way, way too many people uh, in today's world who uh, are taking their 
very passionately held views and manifesting them through violence. I want to bring Francis Rooney back to the conversation and joining us also CNN national security analyst Kerry Cordero and Miles Taylor, the former chief of staff to the Homeland Security Secretary in the Trump White House. Uh, Miles, actually, let me start with you because of what Christopher Wray just said there, basically that he's concerned that the what happened here, a political assassination, could uh, easily spill over here to the United States. I mean, what do you know about the state of that possibility today? We worked closely with Director Ray on this threat, and I don't want to sound alarmist, but I was saying during the break that I think the light is blinking red right now in this country when it comes to the possibility of things like political assassinations. That sounds scary. That's not fear-mongering or a political talking point. It's a real public safety threat that we're seeing with the data. Not only uh, have we seen plots against Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh or the governor of Michigan or potentially the governor of Virginia, let's not forget on January 6th, there were people who had it in their mind that they might assassinate the vice president of the United States. You literally said, hang Mike Pence. Absolutely. When we look at the period before Trump came into office and we compare it to now, it's my assessment that we've roughly seen a tenfold increase in domestic terrorism threats and attitudes towards political violence. The FBI that Chris Ray oversees has investigations in all of its field offices for domestic terrorism across the country. We're seeing plots of extremists online and across borders, just like we saw with ISIS and al-Qaeda. And just a few weeks ago, the DHS issued a terrorism advisory that said in the lead up to the midterms, they're very worried about a spike in violence and a spike that's driven by partly political conspiracy theories. Congressman Rooney, you have some personal experience with this. Many members of Congress have received multiple extremely ugly death threats. What does it mean to be someone who is a target of these threats? Well, I mean, it didn't really bother me all that much, but- And you received death threats? It bothered my family, yes, like almost 12 of them over the four four years. But I got some for the impeachment and some for writing the op-ed that we should accept the election and move on. That really steamed a lot of people in my area. And you know, at the end of the day, you look back to Charlottesville and the, the whole culture change that started, I think, there, and has progressed, as you say, we're in a whole different world than we were at the end of the Obama administration or the Clinton or Bush or whatever. And now people are anesthetized to violence and willing to consider things that would have been unthinkable four or five years ago. If I could put one data point on that, Casey. Sure. A recent poll showed that one in 10 Republicans believe that force and violence would be justified to restore Donald Trump to the White House. One in 10. We're literally talking about millions of people from a University of Chicago study that said he should be forcibly reinstalled. That's a huge increase in attitudes towards political violence. One of the things that's so severe about this current problem is that the potential for violence reaches all levels of people in public life. So uh, I've talked to members of Congress, sitting members of Congress, who are receiving these threats constantly, both in their capital Uh, position and back home in their districts. We heard testimony in the January 6th hearings from the former secretary, the current secretary of state of Georgia and the senior election officials in Georgia who were just uh, inundated with threats to them and their families from the most senior levels in that state election offices down to people who are simply election workers, people who are just serving in public service, regular everyday people who are the subject of these threats. It ranges from federal lawmakers, to state lawmakers, to governors, to people in state legislatures, to people just working in public service. And all of them are wrapped up in this environment of potential political violence. The moment is here. It's not something that is in the future that Director Ray is projecting might happen. These people are constantly under threat. Right. I mean, I, I think back to those two Georgia election workers who, you know, 
the one said she, she can't even use her name when she goes to the grocery store. Uh, she's afraid to go out. Uh, her life is just uh, absolutely And they're not been doing ruined. the work anymore. That's right. the thing. We have to have people who are willing to serve in these positions of elected office and in these positions of civil service across their states and across the federal government. And if they're in constant fear, they won't do those jobs. Right. So, go ahead. I think this fervor has become so intense about the, the MAGA group and the extremists and the conspiracy people that a lot of people that might never commit a crime in their life may wind up doing it because they're caught up in this wave. That's remarkably scary. And Miles, what do, what do you think this means for a potential Trump re-election bid? I mean, we've been, we've been talking tonight about how he may want to announce very soon. I mean, he's talked about doing it before the midterm elections. His people are urging him to wait until after that. But if he does run for re-election, what does that do in terms of animating some of these extremist groups that see themselves as his supporters or enforcers? Well, look, I have to go back to the lessons that we learned that, that Kerry knows and Congressman Rooney knows from the terrorist threats we faced after 9-11. How did those movements evolve? And this will tell you a lot about what we need to worry about if Trump runs again. Those movements evolved from lies and conspiracies that got mainstreamed in cultures where those political grievances, people couldn't exercise them in the system and they used violence to exercise those grievances. When we look at the GOP base right now, those fringe conspiracy theories are now believed by almost half the base. Half of Republicans now statistically believe in QAnon conspiracies, in the Great Replacement Theory, and the stolen election lie. A subset of them are gonna resort to violence to carry that out. And if Trump runs again and continues to fan the flames of those conspiracy theories, counterterrorism history, tells us that we're likely to see more violence because of that. The only thing Here's I would add to that is that it's, it, it, I don't view it as just a Trump problem and him running again. There are numerous other members, uh, either sitting members of Congress or people who want to serve in the Congress who are running almost on a platform of violence, posing with armed weapons, yep. the commercials Very that we've point. seen. Um, so it's not just specific to him. This um, attitude of acceptance of violence and really incitement beyond, of violence is spreading yes, across a political it's party. It's glorification and incitement of, of violence. It's much more than just acceptance. All right. Thank you all for a great conversation tonight. Really appreciate all of your insights. Coming up here, the rare and intense IRS audits of both James Comey and his number two, Andrew McCabe. Were they the targets of political payback with a Trump appointee in charge, a former IRS commissioner who served under Presidents Trump and Obama, joins me next. This just in to CNN, two people familiar with former Trump White House counsel Pat Cipollone's testimony Friday told CNN that the January 6th committee did not ask him if he told Cassidy Hutchinson on January 6th that they would, quote, get charged with every crime imaginable, end quote, if they went to the Capitol. The sources say if asked, he would not have confirmed that particular statement. A separate source familiar with the committee tells CNN, quote, The select committee sought information about Cipollone's views on Trump going to the Capitol on January 6th, implying that the committee's questions were focused on Cipollone's perspective, as opposed to his take on other witnesses' testimony. Very interesting. We're sure to see more about this uh, upcoming on their hearing on Tuesday. All right, let's turn now to concerns that the Trump administration may have weaponized the IRS. That is the question after the New York Times reported that two of Trump's perceived political foes, former FBI Director James Comey and his deputy, Andrew McCabe, were the subjects of intensive and extremely rare tax audits. 
The Times put the probability of both Comey and McCabe's 2016 and 2019 tax reforms, respectively, being chosen at one in 82 million. Yikes. Given the growing scrutiny, the agency says the IRS commissioner asked the Treasury Department's inspector general to conduct the review. In a statement to CNN, the IRS denies that there were any, quote, politically motivated audits and called the idea, quote, ludicrous and untrue. Let's get some perspective now from a former IRS commissioner under Presidents Obama and Trump, John Koskinen. Uh, John, thank you so much uh, for being with us tonight. You know, I think all of us have many, many, many questions about this. Uh, Andrew McCabe responded to the IRS. He called the idea of politically uh, targeted audits ludicrous. I want to show you what McCabe had to say and get your reaction on the other side. Take a look. It's clearly not ludicrous. I mean, we're talking about a... uh... Uh, a coincidence that that really is almost impossible statistically. Americans need to be able to have trust and faith that the institutions they rely on are conducting their business in a fair and impartial manner. And there, there's an indication here that that might not be happening. So, Commissioner, do you think it's ludicrous to think that there might be something politically uh, foul afoot here? Well, normally, if it were just two people who lived in the same neighborhood or worked in the same company, we probably wouldn't be having these conversations. But the fact that both uh, Mr. Comey and Mr. McCabe had been fired by President Trump, who said, uh, you know, uh, terrible things about them, that they were traitors, they should go to jail, obviously makes it uh, important to make sure uh, that nothing untoward was done. Uh, The National Research Program, which was uh, where they uh, were, in, in effect, Uh, audited is a program that's been around for years and is designed to test the compliance rate in the United States. So having one person who ran the FBI uh, uh, selected and then two years later (laughs) his deputy selected does seem to me worth uh, asking a question about just to ensure, as Mr. McCabe said, that the public are confident that every taxpayer is treated fairly, nobody is targeted, and that nothing like this actually can happen. And so I have great confidence in the IRS workforce. Uh, They're all uh, career employees. Only the commissioner and the chief counsel are political appointees, and they all know well that it's a criminal violation just to look at another taxpayer return if you're not authorized, let alone to do anything with it. So I think it's important, as I've said all along, for the inspector general to take a look at this, uh, to report to the IRS and to the public Uh, what actually happened. And that should be a fairly straightforward review because there are great and numerous controls around the process to make sure that something like this doesn't happen. And I think as I've thought about it in my four years as commissioner uh, in the last few days, uh, it would be almost impossible uh, to imagine how you could pull this off uh, without some career employees noting and raising their hands and saying something's wrong here. Well, I mean, it is really remarkable, especially for two uh, lifelong public servants who don't bring in the kind of income that typically uh, seems to generate an IRS audit. So many more questions uh, we'll have to answer about this. But former Commissioner John Koskinen, uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, tonight to answer at least a few of them. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Don Lemon tonight with Laura Coates sitting in starts right now. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.